This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg with my co-host Craig Blumenshine. Hello, Craig. Happy Valentine's Day. Yes, Ashley. Happy Valentine's Day to you. And Ash Wednesday. So good luck to those of you giving up uh, sugar for the Lenten season. Or chocolate. I'm not going to do that. The last time that Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day happened on the same day was 2018. Prior to that, it goes back a lot longer, 1945. And in case you're wondering, they will correspond on the calendar again in 2029. And on our calendar today on the second half, nice and food-filled as we hear from Ricky on Four Prairie Plates. Ashley, we'll open today's Main Street with a story about maybe the future of education. And in the case of one North Dakota startup, the future is now as Be More Colorful, a production company in partnership with HTC Vive, is donating 300 virtual reality headsets to North Dakota secondary schools. The whole aim there is to allow students to experience careers right from the classroom. I'm Craig Blumenshine with Matthew Shosi. Pleasure to have you on Main Street with me, Matthew. Yeah, thanks, Craig. Really appreciate being here. Very, very interested in this technology. It is absolutely high tech. First, though, tell me what the technology is. So Be More Colorful is our production company. We're a virtual reality and immersive media production studio. Um, my wife actually founded the company in 2016, brought me on as CEO a couple months after we started. Since then, we, we did a, tried a lot of different uh, approaches to how do we how do we use immersive media to help solve problems? First, we tried real estate, then we were in travel and tourism. And then in 2019, um, an opportunity opened for us to create uh, immersive career experiences. When you say immersive, what should that mean to our listeners? Immersive means you feel like you're in the space. An immersive experience, think about a home virtual tour where you can spin the images around, you can navigate through. That'd be kind of layer one of an immersive experience. But now imagine you're not looking at a 2D screen of that image, but you're inside the image where you can look around and it feels like you're there. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about immersive. You, you feel like you're teleported to a new location. So you've been looking now at different industries where this can really be applied and different approaches. Big problem that we've been working to solve over the last four years is there is a huge career awareness gap. The students can only choose a career that they've been made aware of. There's a lack of opportunity opportunity to show the full depth and breadth of all of the opportunities that, that are out there. So we've created a product that is has quickly become our flagship, CareerView XR, which is a library of immersive field trip and job shadow experiences that can be viewed on all standard devices plus virtual reality headsets. There's the production of these videos and then the experience of these videos. Production first. How do you shoot these? <laughs> we use 360 degree cameras. So if you imagine like a really extreme fisheye lens, it's actually, it looks like a hemisphere, a half of a sphere of glass. We use uh, cameras that have two of those. So it captures 190 degrees on both sides, which allows us to stitch that imagery together. And it's actually called a photosphere or a video sphere. It is a ball, a sphere of imagery that we, that we capture. When you shoot then and need to edit those videos, I'm guessing the way that editing was done two, three years ago is already drastically different than it is today. Tell me about that bridge. There are definitely new tools out there, but it, it's interesting because this concept of spherical images has been around for 
25 plus years. The editing tools have been getting better and better. The cameras have been getting better and better. So the efficiency with the post-production is a lot easier now. It used to be that we needed a you know, beast of a machine just to stitch a single image, uh, let alone 30 frames per second of, of a video. But now that post-production process through the new software tools that are available, a lot of it is, is pretty seamless. And then that allows us to, to break out the little clips that we use for showing what the different aspects in each, each career is like. How do you choose then which careers to showcase, if you will? So when we're looking at choosing careers, we start with the North Dakota in-demand occupations list because there's been a lot of hard work that's gone into identifying what are those most critical careers that North Dakota needs filled. That also mirrors what the national in-demand occupations list looks like. So we use that as kind of a guidepost. But then we're also always asking students and teachers, what do you want to see? Because while we need to show here are the missing gaps in the workforce, we also want to make sure that students are excited about the platform and it has things that they want to learn about. We'll, you know, we get the occasional NASCAR driver, NBA player, but those are really few and far between. By and large, students want to see things like pilot, truck driver. We've gotten multiple requests for agronomist, things that you wouldn't think that they're asking for, but that we have here available in North Dakota. So it's demand, it's demand driven, but then it's also based on who is available and willing, what employers, what industry partners are available and willing to open up their space to be filmed. So there's this tool called a viewing device that looks high tech. Tell me exactly what it is. Any of the imagery we can create can be viewed on any standard device. Standard two-dimensional laptops. Yep, yep. laptop or tablet or mobile phone. But when we're talking about like a wearable device and a fully immersive device, then we're starting to talk about either a virtual or augmented reality or mixed reality headset. It's a piece of hardware that you wear that allows you to get be consumed or, or be entirely within that space. There are a wide variety of different types of headsets that are out there and available, all the way from the, the Oculus Go, which you can probably find on, on eBay or Craigslist for you know 50 bucks, all the way up to the Apple Vision Pro that just released for $3,500. Those are all immersive media devices, um, headset, head-mounted displays would be the generic term for those. So you have decided as a company to donate 300 to North Dakota public and private schools. Tell me about that decision and then the execution of that decision. Yeah, absolutely. So we were very fortunate. Well, all, all North Dakota schools were actually very fortunate to receive access to the CareerView platform through funding that the North Dakota legislature made available to the Department of Career and Technical Education. Since fall of last year, they've had the opportunity to access all the content on standard devices, and some schools have invested in headsets but others have not because of variety of reasons, funding, lack of awareness or knowledge of which headset do I buy. You can hit paralysis pretty quickly when your options are 50 bucks for a used, used headset, 3,500 for the brand new Apple one. Both of those would work. Yep, they'd both work because the media that we produce is, is universal across those devices. A, a video sphere is a video sphere regardless of which headset you're using to view it. Because there are so many products out there, it makes it really challenging for schools to decide, well, what should I get? And also, they'll, they may go down a path and think, well, I need a whole classroom set of VR headsets. And the reality is that you don't. Because the platform is available on standard devices and headsets, a single, a single shared device can work really well for a school. So we wanted to make sure that schools in North Dakota stepped off on the right foot and they were able to have 
a quality piece of hardware. Um, we actually worked with HTC Vive, one of our preferred manufacturers of headsets. Um, we actually bought a container of, of VR headsets, so 1,296 headsets. And what we're doing is we're including those headsets in sales of Creerview subscriptions to schools around the country, and we're taking a portion of those proceeds and offsetting the costs of the headsets that were donated to North Dakota schools. Oftentimes, I think when tech has been introduced into classrooms, the tech far outweighs the experience of a teacher. How does a teacher learn to utilize this tech? How do they adapt? Are they given the tools to adapt? First thing I want to emphasize is that when we started the CareerView platform, we actually started creating recruiting experiences for employers, and it was teachers who told us we need that in the classroom. So out of the gate, the CareerView platform came out of a need that teachers told us they had. Our initial thought for CareerView is there would be a set of headsets that would travel around the state and be available to teachers. Somehow they would magically all be charged and not have any technical issues. And one teacher would know when to send it to the next one. It, it was not a great first idea. How do we make this work for you? And that was where they said, well, can we view it on non-VR devices? And light bulb moment, we've already been creating these web-based tours we went too far down the technology pathway too quickly. So we shifted and we focused on building the web-based tours accessible on all devices and making the headsets optional. So um, long way to get to the answering your question of out of the gates, it's clicking on links and navigating. It's intuitive for the web-based content. On the headset side of things, we have built, um, it, we have an onboarding process for all schools. We have dedicated support services on our team. And we've actually engaged North Dakota's Edutech departments to be boots on the ground for any schools that have questions or issues with the hardware or the software. So it, it's not a haphazard approach to this. This has been something that's been four years in the making. And it came from the needs that teachers, counselors, and students identified and brought forward to us. Is this being done? elsewhere, Matthew? Yeah, there are other solutions that are out there. A lot of the other solutions that, that have been adopted you know, across the country and even internationally are simulations that, that show someone how to perform a task, laying the bead of welding, working on the instrumentation control panel, connecting the wires, and those are great training solutions. What has been missed, though, is that base level awareness, the uniqueness of, of CareerView XR, that it is real people performing real work in real environments, but those situations that you could never take a student in person so that they can feel what's it like to be on top of an actual wind turbine or on an oil production rig in Western North Dakota inside the emergency room when, you know, a patient is is wheeled in. And so, so those types of authentic experiences have really not been out there. And the fact that it's accessible both on VR headsets and all standard devices, there's an accessibility component to CareerView that, that isn't in any other product that we found in the marketplace. What's really exciting about that is this library of content we've primarily produced in North Dakota is now being used by schools in 12 other states. We have 34 area technical centers in the Commonwealth of Kentucky that are using it. And we just signed our first international reseller partnership. We're enjoying our conversation with Matthew Shosey. He's with Be More Colorful, which is a VR production studio here in North Dakota. What is the age of student that you are marketing to? We're primarily producing content for middle school to high school. But what we're actually finding is that it's flexible. There are adults that are very interested in it. We actually have two North Dakota job service centers who are subscribed and use CareerView for their adult career seekers. 
We have elementary schools. They're able to engage with students and talk about different industries, really because it's immersive, interactive. Curve XR is like an immersive field trip that's available 24-7. And we rate them uh, E for everyone. From start to finish to produce the video, A, how long is that produced video generally? Is there a sweet spot for length? And B, how long does it take? We have found there's a sweet spot. When we started, it was anywhere from little 90-second clips that had three or four scenes to 14-minute videos that might have 20 or more scenes. Well, we've really found that sweet spot for attention span and usability in the classroom is 10 to 15 different scenes that are each 20 to 30 seconds in length, and that results in a five to seven minute VR video experience. What's your biggest challenge that you see, or maybe a couple challenges that are in front of you in order to have the success that you want to have? Continuing to source production partners that are really excited about being involved in a platform like this, there's there's inherent challenges with producing any media. And a lot of times when we're working with new production partners, they've never worked with 360 degree uh, imagery. And, and that requires a additional level of care and, and informing our partners in terms of what that all looks like. So it's you do most of the production in-house today? Yes, yeah, we do all of our production in-house. Scaling that is a challenge. Right now we're on pace for between 40 and 50 new experiences every year, but we do want to begin expansion of production into other states as well. That will require probably a distributed partner network. So that's one challenge that, that we're identifying right now, but we've got we've got a couple ideas for how how that will that will expand. But the nice thing is we don't need to recreate every career in every market that we go into. We've created a great baseline set of experiences here in North Dakota. Dental hygienist experience, for instance, up in Devil's Lake, North Dakota. That's the same in LA as it is in Devil's Lake, North Dakota, as it is in Orlando, Florida. A dental hygienist in the US is doing the same thing. So really the opportunity for us becomes producing experiences in new and different industries and at employer locations that, that are outside what we can, what we can produce here. Um, figuring out how to scale that, that's going to be a challenge. Um, the other, another big challenge is just having schools adopt the hardware and understand the value of incorporating immersive media. Public K-12 schools are typically you know, later to the game for adopting hardware. And this is such an important tool to help kids go down the right career path that we, we want to do everything that we can to support adoption of extended reality, virtual reality in K-12. That's a big part of why we're doing this, this headset donation to show that, hey, North Dakota can do this on a statewide level and get other states to be encouraged to, to try and do the same thing. So, of course, there are hundreds of schools in North Dakota, middle schools and high schools. How do you possibly market to the folks that you want to market to? Well, for us, I mean, we, we've, we've been really fortunate that um, we piloted in North Dakota schools for a couple of years. Um, the legislature saw fit to provide funding to CTE for the purchase of virtual reality career exploration software. CTE decided to go with the, the CareerView solution. So we are in every middle school and high school across the state. CareerView XR is being delivered through the statewide areyouready.nd.gov career information network. So all of the web-based experiences can be accessed through that for all students. Matthew, your 10-year vision would be? 
Our 10-year vision is CareerViewX are accessible to every student in every state. That's um, a big vision. <laughs> it is. And and the way that we're going to get there is um, not by individual purchases of, the, of subscriptions by schools, but through industry and employer partnerships. We're already starting to see that happening here in North Dakota, where um, the access to the platform is funded through June of 2025. But we want to work with our industry partners and employer partners here to ensure that the cost does not become a burden to schools that the employers and industry partners who are getting the benefit out of students learning what they want to do earlier are helping offset some of those costs and getting visibility for that. Um, that's a model that's starting to evolve here in North Dakota. And we see that as a model that could easily be, be scaled nationally. We've actually had conversations with, with a number of nationwide industry associations who are already talking about creating an experience with us and then having their membership organizations license that content or sponsor access for a school and ensures that no student in the country misses an opportunity to pursue their dream job just because they didn't know it existed. People want to learn more about what it is that you're doing now or plan to do, they should go where? Yeah, uh, careerviewxr.com is the is the product site. Also, feel free to check out bemorecolorful.com. Matthew Shosi, he's with Be More Colorful. Matthew, thank you for joining us on Main Street. Thank you. I'm Ira Plato. On Science Friday, we wonder about the secrets of nature and meet the scientists finding the keys to the universe, like Black Hole Maven Jan 11. I think it's really important as a scientist not to put a belief system first. The whole point is to explore the unknown. Come explore with us. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Science Friday. Listen every Friday evening at 7 Central, 6 Mountain on Prairie Public. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. In this week's Natural North Dakota essay from biologist Chuck Lura, we learn about the active breeding season that is happening during winter calm. January's in the rearview mirror, as is a goodly portion of February. But whether Puxatawney Phil saw his shadow or not, no self-respecting North Dakota groundhog would stick their head out of their burrow in early February. Any thoughts of spring are premature. But are they? Even though the winter landscape looks quiet and almost abandoned, looks can be deceiving. Many small mammals, such as shrews, voles, and deer mice, have remained active all winter under the snow, some even reproducing. It may surprise some of you that the breeding season for great horned owls will start soon if it hasn't already. They're known to begin their breeding season in North Dakota in late February. Their calls are more frequently heard this time of year as they stake out their territory and call for a mate. It might seem like it's way too early for nesting, but the incubation period takes about a month, and the young remain in the nest for another six to seven weeks. So by the time they're ready to fly, it's into June. Beavers, of course, have been spending their winter in the safety of their lodges and under the ice with their cached branches of aspen and willow. They're well into their breeding season, which runs roughly January through February. The young, however, will not be born until May or June. The breeding season for deer and other large mammals was last fall, but love's in the air now for several other common but smaller North Dakota mammals. The mating season for both coyotes and red foxes, for example, began in January, while that of raccoons and spotted skunks generally begins in February. The timing of all of this, of course, is to increase the chances for the survival of the offspring. Most young of the year will be born when environmental conditions and food availability 
are about as good as it gets during the cycle of the seasons. For many, that's around May and June. So as you travel about and look out on that seemingly quiet landscape these days, give some consideration to the many animals that are already active in trying to ensure the next generation of their species gets off to a good start. Oh, woodchucks hibernate, and don't come out until around April, with the young being born in May. I'm Chuck Lara. Natural North Dakota is supported in part by the NDSU Central Grasslands Research Extension Center. You can get Natural North Dakota essays delivered to your inbox every week. Sign up for the email newsletter at prairiepublic.org. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. In this Plains Folk essay, Tom Ezern delves into a unique episode of agriculture and environmental history in March of 1916 when a sham battle against white-tailed jackrabbits was reported in Hobart Township in the Valley City Record. In March of 1916, the Valley City Record reported a battle having taken place in Hobart Township, but the paper called it a sham battle, a battle against white-tailed jackrabbits, which had come to be regarded as an agricultural pest, particularly for their consumption of alfalfa. And the Great War was on, providing rhetorical inspiration for the event. The offending rabbits had been noticed mobilizing in large numbers along the river bluffs, and something had to be done, declared the reporter. A farmer named Charles Faust was designated commander-in-chief of the attacking party, assailing the rabbits well entrenched along the river. It was not long until the rabbits had left their trenches and were in full retreat, after which the victorious volunteers were served lunch and hot coffee. Those present went home, and judged the reporter, with the firm conviction that it is preparedness that counts. A war has consequences for our relationship with nature. Indeed, among us wonky academics, the hottest field in military history now is the environmental history of warfare. I'm saying it reaches all the way across the Atlantic to touch places like Hobart Township in the middle of North Dakota and its jackrabbits. Food shortages were a constant concern during the Great War, with eggs sometimes scarce. North Dakota had flocks of laying hens, but they were poor producers in winter. Somebody discovered that, as the Jamestown Alert said in 1916, the indifference of the hen to egg laying during the winter months is something that can be changed with the provision of protein supplements in the form of jackrabbit carcasses. A good many farmers have found that their hens eat greedily of jackrabbit meat during the cold weather, and a diet of jackrabbit is a great incentive to hens laying. Hmm. Rabbits killed in winter could be frozen for storage and used as needed. Egg production and the already strong penchant for pest control kept communities actively organizing rabbit drives into the 1920s, during which time, and I have to think, the return of veterans with military experience had something to do with this. Rabbit drives turned into sophisticated military-style operations, large in scale. 300 men took part in a rabbit drive near McCluskey, in February 1920, and killed more than 500 rabbits. This required the formation of lines to encircle large areas and drive to the center. It occurs to me that automobiles were making a difference by this point. Rabbit drives were much larger because participants drove to them on call from long distances. The reporter at McCluskey emphasized the large amount of grain consumed by jackrabbits and the fruit trees they killed through ring barking. He also said, it was a great day for the boys, and men, too, enjoyed the drive. The drive ended at about 
and a dinner was served at a nearby farm. Amidon, Wilton, one town after another had such organized rabbit drives in the 1920s and for a while in the 1930s, but the greatest of them all was in New England. In 1926, the president of the Ad Hoc Association organizing the New England Rabbit Drive, C.L. Strong, recounted that this was the fourth annual such event. The previous year's drive had killed more than 9,000 rabbits. This year's hunt, Strong explained, was an invitational event, appealing to, he said, the entire Northwest to drive in and kill rabbits at New England. Organized rabbit hunts had become matters of destination tourism. You don't have to be a dedicated animal rights advocate to be uncomfortable with his chapter in our environmental history. Nor need we be consumed with guilt about it. We just might think a little bit about our legacy relationship with the land and its creatures. That was Tom Ezern, a distinguished professor of history at North Dakota State University. More Main Street after this. If you really want to know what's going on in this country ahead of the election next year, you've got to get away from the extremes and listen to the middle. Hi, my name is Venkat. I'm calling you from Atlanta, Georgia. On my new live national call-in show, The Middle with Jeremy Hobson, we'll elevate the voices of Americans who need to be part of our national conversation. Hi, Jan, here in Kansas City, Missouri. Join me every week for The Middle with Jeremy Hobson. The Middle, listen Fridays at 3 p.m. Central, 2 Mountain on Prairie Public. You're listening to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and we are going to, in a little bit, get an experience from Ricky on as his time as a judge at a recent hot dish competition. But he is going to talk to us now about chili cook-offs, food fish fries, and pancake feeds. Rick, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me again. Well, you know, yes, it's been a warm February, but it is still February in the Great Plains. And, you know, you need comfort food. (laughs) You need a little bit of winter weight. Luckily, there are some good, easy ways to do that. And and we, you know, tend to celebrate coming together over food. Uh, You have been at a couple of big food events recently, including like a, a pancake feed, right? Yes, the 66th annual Kiwanis Pancake Carnival held at the Fargo Dome, which served uh, around 7,000 people this year. 7,000? Yes. That's and a lot of pancakes, because you get two or three, right? You get, well, I had three. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and some extra sausage. They do have extra sausage and sell it uh, separately, too. But, yeah, I, I came out of there pretty full. <laughs> well, walk us through a little bit the atmosphere. Like, you can make pancakes at home pretty easily. You can go to a restaurant and get pancakes pretty easily. Why go to a pancake event? What changes? Well, I think the big thing is is that the Kiwanis group here, um, the proceeds go to helping organizations that help children around the area. Mm. And so that's really great. And I don't think a lot of people uh, understand all that work goes in, what all that work goes into. And so, yeah, uh, that event is always popular. Tickets are only 10 bucks. People come out of there full and they do breakfast and lunch. I think it's from 7 to 3 p.m. And so uh, there's, a, there's a big attraction with it every year. Before COVID, they had a much larger crowds, but... It's, it's getting back to where it used to be. 
So, yeah, I don't know. It's it's just a, a really fun event. And there are other big Midwest food events mm. such as chili cook-offs, meat raffles, <laughs> and now Lenten season with fish fries. What's a meat raffle? A meat raffle. It can be done in a few different ways. Um, I was just at a chili cook-off actually at the Moorhead American Legion where they were doing a meat raffle with tickets, kind of a traditional raffle where you pay five bucks for a ticket and that sort of thing. And you get put in a drawing for certain uh, kinds of meat, you know, five pound log of hamburger, steaks, roasts, that sort of thing. And it can be a lot of fun. I've also seen uh, meat raffles done by via bingo and also via like a a pig wheel sort of thing. And so that's that you can do meat raffles uh, different ways, but a lot of times the proceeds do go to charity too, such as Moorhead Legion. It was benefiting the honor flight, so pretty mm. neat. What were you doing at the pancake feed? Were you just there in attendance? Well, yeah, I, I was um, supposed to flip some pancakes, and Rick Stern wanted me to flip some pancakes, but I actually, the NDSU football team just showed up. <laughs> and You didn't want to take them on? No. Like a billion times national champions here? <laughs> I figured they could take care of business, and they, were, <laughs> and they really did. They got the job done, and so I just kind of walked around and did some social media for them um, mm. on my Fargo Moorhead Eats Facebook group page. And that was a lot of fun, too, because I got to say hi to a lot of people. And that's another thing about a big uh, pancake feed like that is you run into so many people and get to talk with so many people and say hi. And so it really is one of those full community events. Sure. Yeah. Nice and socializing. You've also been talking a little bit about chili cook-offs here. Do those typically just serve one kind of chili, or is it like a contest like you were at last week, the hot dish contest? Now, that's a really good question (laughs) because at uh, Duffy's Tavern Chili Cook-Off, that was February 3rd, that had 20 chilies for the judges to try, and I wasn't a judge at that Mm. chili cook-off. But that was a lot of chili. I checked that out and tried a few myself. But the one at the Moorhead American Legion a couple weeks ago, that had 31 chilies. And it takes the judges about an hour per 10 chilies. This is some inside info. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, and I actually brought a judging form today that uh, you can judge. They judge by aroma, appearance, texture and taste on a one to 10 scale. And uh, so at the Moorhead Legion, it took them three hours to judge the 31 chilies. Yeah, it's serious business. That's like, how long was the Super Bowl? (laughs) (laughs) That's a Super Bowl of chili. I mean, I guess there's probably a lot of chili served, uh, you know, also during the the Super Bowl. How hard is it to find big food events like this? Well, you really got to kind of scour social media, but I'm out there kind of looking for these things and looking at, they'll put posters up at the grocery store. That's how I find a lot of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, yeah, I mean, there's always that bulletin board up and I'm like, oh, there's a fish fry here. There's a chili cook off here. I'll travel to small towns and stuff like that for a good fish fry. Um, But yeah, I mean, you really need to kind of dig a little bit, but if you know, you know, uh, some of these folks have been going to these events 
for quite a long time. So it, it can be it can be kind of a fun venture. <laughs> We've mentioned fish fry a couple of times here, and of course, uh, that tends to come up more during Lenten season, first day of Lent here. Um, February 14th is tough for all of those <laughs> wanting to have some Valentine's Day chocolates and, you know, giving up chocolate is another big, or sweets is another big thing to sacrifice uh, during Lent. Uh, but of course, in the fish fry, it's because of not eating meat on Fridays. What do you look for when you go to a fish fry? Well, it has to be hand-battered fish. I've I've gone to a few of them where it's kind of frozen stuff and they'll mm. and they'll bake it, bake it and it's not that's not a fish fry. You need to have the fryers going. You need to hand batter them, hand bread them, get them fried. A couple different kinds of fish. That's a nice option to have if you have walleye or cod or pollock or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like fresh fried fries or chips with it too, but that's kind of a lot to ask, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of frying after a while. Like just. I don't know. I can't be around the smell of fried food very often without getting a headache, or very long anyway. Yeah, when I fry things, I tend to fry them outside mm. in, in when the temperature is a little nicer. But here or there, these churches often have like commercial-grade kitchens with big vents, sure, and sure. they'll open the window, so it's a little bit different. But frying inside your own house, Ugh. yeah, I don't recommend it. The fish fries because it's Catholics that that aren't eating meat. Can anyone just go, even if it's at a church of not their faith? I've seen them at both, at community centers, that sort of thing. I'm Catholic, so I kind of <laughs> dial into the fish fry thing here because I like it. And I know this is not Wisconsin, and they're a little more popular in Wisconsin, and I've spent mm. some time in the Wausau, Claire areas. And, uh, but here they can be, and if they're done the right way, people will flock to them. Do you know why they're more popular in Wisconsin? I have no idea. I think it's just <laughs> I think it's just a thing there. I, they and they have them year round oftentimes on Fridays. So yeah, yeah it's I think it's just a, a thing there. They just like fried fish, which hey, I can't disagree with that at all. <laughs> I've noticed that a lot of fish fries are down in southeastern North Dakota. Uh, there is a large population in western North North Dakota Catholic population, and so there are a lot of fish fries out there mm. as well. Um, I just don't travel out there as much as I definitely like to because I will travel for food. (laughs) How many miles do you put on in a year for food, do you think? A lot. (laughs) A lot. Do you ever take away tips? I mean, not that you ever need to make pancakes for 7,000 people on a personal level, but, you know, last time I was at a hotel, I... I ended up looking at their pancake flipping machine, (laughs) which I was like, okay, that's way too expensive for home use. Yes. I mean, there's definitely a strategy to how they make the pancakes at at this big pancake carnival. They have uh, cookers that actually spin and you take a big uh, apparatus and kind of shoot the, the batter down. And then this big circle pancake cooker apparatus thing kind of spins one person can man it and you cook like dozens of pancakes all at the same time it's really it's really interesting to watch we visit once a week with ricky on for prairie plates thank you rick thank you
Not that there have been many this year, but what staple North Dakota dish do you want on a cold winter night? I'm Norwegian. I grew up on hot dish. My grandmother made the best hot dish in the world. You betcha. And those who wanted to smell and taste a little slice of home descended on Bruhalla February 4th for the Fargo Hot Dish Festival. The sold-out event featured 14 hot dishes for attendees and judges to taste test from restaurants around the area. On the tasting panel, Sioux Falls chef Bo Vandra, yours truly, and Food Network star Molly Ye. Just seeing the different interpretations of hot dish is super inspiring. Yay, a past Fargo Hot Dish Festival judge said there are a lot of things she looks for while judging hot dish. She wanted to have the four main components, right? You've got to have something meaty or proteiny. I've done a bean dish before the vegetarian. You've got to have veggies. You've got to have something to hold it all together. So it's got to have that sauciness. And you've got to have a really fun topping. So of course, obviously the most iconic is tater tots, but I think it's, I saw some great toppings around here. There were like, the, one of them had like three types of French's onions, and then there were French's onions flavored potato chips and French's onions flavored Funyuns. There was just a lot of Funyun energy happening on that one, and so I think that having that quirky element goes a long way. I think a hot dish doesn't take itself too seriously, and it kind of knows that it's ugly, but that it's also delicious and really comforting. Ye also said there were a lot of tasty choices at the day's event. In my line of sight right now is this Chicago-inspired hot dish, which has jardinera on top. And I thought that that was a really delicious, really refreshing interpretation of that crunchy element on top. When you think crunchy element, you're thinking something fried, or you're thinking a chip, or we saw wonton strips here today too. But I thought that having that element be something pickled and acidic and crisp as a vegetable was a very nice to the heavier Bo Vandra, who's also appeared on Food Network to compete in Guy's Grocery Games, had additional criteria for the day's judging. It's wild because like there's the traditional sense of what you imagine hotness should be like, and there was a few of those that really kind of drove home on that aspect. But then from a cooking aspect, there was a couple that hit all the notes that I look for when I'm tasting a dish or creating a dish. Hot Dish Festival attendee Dave Anderson had a few favorites at the event and was inspired to maybe try cooking up some new hot dishes at home. The Cajun one. Was it Blackbird? Blackbird. Jambalaya? The jambalaya. That was really excellent. Good flavors. Yeah, and then the, the, the Reuben one. It never occurred to me to try Reuben in a hot dish, but the Reuben was great. That was really good too. So yeah, there were some tricks here that I thought were really excellent. The grand champion and People's Choice winner of this year's Fargo Hot Dish Festival was Cows & Company based out of Carrington, North Dakota. Although Cows & Company is more known for cheeses and gelatos, their Dutch-inspired hot dish was also top tier. Owner Marcia Murphy was very grateful for the major awards. I'm pretty pumped. I mean, really unexpected and we were pretty nervous joining this competition, but I'm thankful we did and our team had a lot of fun, so I'm, I'm very happy. Other winners at the event included 701 Eateries for a Chicago Italian beef inspired hot dish that garnered the most creative award and Blackbird Woodfire for best booth. Chef Avalon Hoff of 701 Eateries, who won grand champion last year for her cabbage roll hot dish, likes the fun rivalry between local restaurants. I've worked in the service industry here for like almost like seven years, so I have a lot of friends that work at other restaurants, so it's really nice to see them and have like nice friendly competition. I'd love to do 
just more like cooking competitions in the area, especially ones that are a little bit more casual and not as high stakes, I think are really nice and kind of keeps us all on our toes and kind of forces us to be creative. For Prairie Public, I'm Rick Eon. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. The theme of this year's Black History Month is Africans and the Arts. Pastor Mudende collects art from his travels back to Africa. He's brought them back for his new coffee shop, Chai Moto, now open in South Fargo. We get a tour of his collection. This is this one I got from Ethiopia. Uh, so it's an Ethiopian coffee pot. Okay, so it's ceramic bottom, but it looks like it has a tall, skinny... Skinny uh, neck. Yeah, I mean, yeah. almost, for want of a better descriptor, it looks like the Aladdin kind of genie bottle. <laughs> yes, definitely. You, what, yeah. What's the function of the tall, skinny spout? Oh, it's just to, to, it's a carver for it to keep the coffee hot. Okay. It comes with a stand for okay. it. And basically what you do is they they put coffee grounds in there mm. and water and put it on top of uh, heat or fire and let it boil for quite some time. Oh, wow. And if they want to pour it, there's a way they angle it so that the coffee grounds can settle. And then so you don't it. need a filter. You don't need a filter. It's built in. It's, it's built in the design. Yes. So this is this is the ultimate form and function here. Yeah, this is the ultimate form and function. Yes. Wow. Um, and it brings the world more coffee. <laughs> yes, and uh, it has. Uh, I've used it to to make coffee. It definitely changes the flavor of coffee as we know it. So really? it has. Yeah, it has more. It's it's clay, so you can test the clay flavor. Okay. Um, wow. Um, some of these pieces are made from by a group or an artist from Rwanda, so it's a collective. There's one, two artists who basically make a design and they find like wood sculptures, mm. uh, people who work with metal and so on and so forth and they create different types of design. But a lot of pieces here are basically from Rwanda, from my home country and I can explain some of them so this here there's a we have five five different sculptures that basically have the same meaning of the same form in Kenya Rwanda it's called Ichansi it's a wooden piece that we use to store milk okay and so these ones here are basically more artistic rendition of that functional form, but they are more of the decorative part of it. Mm. Um, the little pieces, there is a, it has little round pieces that are made with brass, mm -hmm. and there's little the rounded knobs that are sticking out are made from cow horns. Um, and is that purely aesthetic, or is there a function to having uh, for, knobs for, on there? For, for this one, it's purely aesthetic. This, okay. this is uh, the artistic reimagination and the okay. and, uh, re of the traditional Ichansi. And these here are woven baskets from Rwanda. incredible. 
this one is called Agaseke. Agaseke is, in one way, in our tradition in Rwanda, it's a place where you put your things that have value. If you ever enter a, a house mm -hmm. of a Rwandan person, yeah. chances are you'll see this see hanging out somewhere in the living room. There's so much beauty infused into the practical object. Yes, absolutely. Instead of just, you know, get a square box from Target. Yes, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, Rwandans, they also make a different type of art called mm -hmm. imigongo. Imigongo? So, yes, okay. imigongo is basically, you'll see it has a lot of uh, geometrical shapes mm -hmm. and it usually has a lot of muted colors. It's usually like black and white or mm. red and white. Okay. So, and is that because of available material? Or uh, no, it's just the aesthetics. The Rwandan artists tend to be more uh, leaning towards the minimal part of the design. Okay. Yeah. So I bought these ones because uh, it was very different. It wasn't just a geometrical shape, but you could tell uh, the artist was making some abstract shape of faces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and this one is not very typical to see. Um, and that's why I bought it. Hmm. Is this all hand beaded? Yes, it's hand beaded. So, so this took somebody? Quite some time. 20, 40 hours? I have no idea. I would assume, yes. Uh, and it's carved out of wood. Yeah. Uh, basically, yeah. Wow. Um, and the pieces that came with it all came out of this piece. Mm -hmm. uh, I do believe it's called a calabash in English. Uh, in Kinyarwanda, it's called agachuma. It's mm -hmm. for serving traditional wine. So they put a traditional brewed wine and then they use a bamboo straw to drink out of this. Okay. So, yeah, so in a take, communal way? You know, uh, sometimes in a communal way, sometimes in an individual way, okay. depending yeah. on, on how you want it. Hmm. Um, so yeah, you don't drink out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so I use a bamboo straw. Um, and the reason why I have this is because the goal of the coffee shop was basically to serve coffee and wine, and I do believe that the the little bit of art of uh, mm. of a fermented drink yeah. uh, from the motherland speaks to it. Mm. Yes, and I have uh, these small sculptures of uh, basically figurines of human. The hairstyle that they're wearing right here mm -hmm. is a traditional Rwandan hairstyle called amasunzu. So that's what this artist, artist is uh, okay. representing here. I love how it matches the little whisks you use for yeah, making it, matcha. It, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it matches, uh, yeah, so the masunzu is made with, uh, with brass colored okay. wire. Yeah. And it does, it does match with the matcha sticks. Uh, <laughs> it matches with the basket I had. Yeah. Uh, it matches with the little sculptures of, of a, a traditional African warrior hmm. holding a spear and the shield, mm -hmm. it feels like they're protecting the agaseke where you put your, oh, where, you put uh, your where you put your valuables. Oh, wow. That was Pastor Mudende, the owner of Chai Moto. He is also an artist himself. In fact, he did the painting on the outside of the Plains Art Museum of Maya Angelou. We will hear more from Mudende tomorrow on the art of brewing a proper cup of coffee and tea. 
Support for Dakota Datebook is provided by Books on Broadway and Dakota Soda and Coffee Company of Williston, featuring coffees and a wide variety of books for children and adults. Books on Broadway, the independent bookstore for independent minds. This is Dakota Datebook for February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day! Here's a sampling of how North Dakotans have celebrated the day in the past. Possibly one of the first Valentine's Day events in what is now North Dakota was a St. Valentine's Ball held in 1875 in Bismarck to benefit a music and dance teacher. The public was invited, and tickets cost $3. Stores in what is now North Dakota sold Valentine cards as early as 1881, when a Jamestown seller offered a large stock of sentimental and comic Valentines. In 1885, a Valentine's Day children's carnival at a skating rink in Wapaton awarded a $1 prize to the most graceful couple. Coupons went to the most handsomely dressed girl and boy, and Valentine's went to the best boy and girl skaters. Another boy won 50 cents for best-dressed soldier. In 1886, the Bismarck chapter of the United Ancient Order of Druids hosted a Valentine's Day ball with proceeds going to the sick and to the Order's Benefit Fund. In 1892, a Minto woman received 58 comic Valentines by mail. The postmaster provided her with a special sack for the hall. In 1904, the Delandrochis department store in Fargo offered a complete lineup of Valentines from two cents up to $1.50 each. In 1918, six students of Bismarck High School's Domestic Science Department gave a dinner party with their mothers and friends as guests. They served a wartime menu with alternatives for meat and wheat. Dessert featured a red and white heart-shaped cake. In the Depression-era 1930s, community dances and bridge parties were common Valentine's Day events. In 1945, North Dakota's First Lady hosted a tea in honor of state lawmakers' wives at the governor's mansion. Among the 100 guests were the wives of four previous governors. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Jack Dora. I'm Bill Thomas. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from Humanities North Dakota.